Welcome to the watermarkoc.church podcast. Thank you for listening. So glad you all made it out. My name is Ben Appleby. I'm the associate pastor here at Watermark. Welcome. Uh, Bucky, who is our lead pastor, him and his wife Kathleen are uh, out of town for a couple weeks on a, on a much deserved little mini sabbatical. So that means you're stuck with me. Sorry. No. It's going to be fun. It's going to be good stuff. We're continuing in this series, like Seth said, um, in, in Elijah, you are not alone. We're looking at the promises of God for those who have been sent. We're reminding ourselves of the promises of God for those who have been sent. That's me and you, by the way. And the story comes from 1 Kings. So you can get your Bibles out right now. Get your phones out if you're using the Bible app. 1 Kings 19, 19 through 21 is where we're going to be this morning. And we're going to look at those, those three verses. Once again, if you're joining us for the first time, and this is kind of a refresher to this whole church thing, uh, 1 Kings is one book uh, within 66 books that is the Bible. This, this happens to be a part of the Old Testament books. There's history books and law and poetry there. And this is one of those, uh, those history books. It's an incredible story. We believe it's a real historical moment in time uh, following this life this, of this, this man named Elijah. And I want to share with you something I think is pretty remarkable from the last great chapter of Elijah's story, of his life. But before we get there, let's recap, all right? Because there's amazing history here. And if you've missed a week or two here and there, I want to bring us up to speed. Like I said, Elijah is this guy, the word they use in the Bible is prophet. He's a messenger. He's a messenger of God sent to God's chosen people, the Jews, the Israelites. And, uh, but he's just a man. It's important for us to remember that. He's just a man. He's just a human being like you or like me. And, uh, and yet he's been called for a place and a time. And that place and that time is pretty radical. Okay, It's about 550 years before the time of Jesus. And, and it's kind of descended into chaos. You have this, um, this, this Jewish kind of uh, monarchy type situation. And, and there's the 12 tribes. And they've been divided. And there's these two kingdoms, two ways of rule. And the main king, this guy, um, Ahab, he stands, for the most part, as the bad guy in this whole narrative of Elijah. And, of course, Elijah being the protagonist, the man of God. But the whole culture has descended into this kind of uh, this godless, the, the word from, from the Bible that we'll see the most is uh, idol, this, uh, this idolatry, which is just anything that takes the attention away from God, anything that, that takes worship uh, and, and what's due to God. Um, the, the, the main god, of course, that was worshipped there is this guy, uh, Baal. Baal, spelled B-A-A. L. And um, it was so prevalent that literally even the streets were named after him. So it'd be like, uh, if you think of our modern day example, 17th Street Baal, right? Magnolia Baal, okay, Red Hill Baal. It was prevalent. It was everywhere. They were counting on this so called God for the provision, for the seasons, for the rain, for the weather, for the food, for everything. This was their guy. That was their model. And uh, Elijah has been through thick and thin. He's been through every peak and every valley that you and I have experienced. Um, Has he doubted God's plan? Check. Has he doubted God's provision? Check. Has he doubted who he was? Check. How about feeling alone and surrounded by enemies on all sides? Check and check. He's been through the ringer. He's had such a life, such a story. Um, It's far from over. But I have this this idea, this proposition I want to put before you this morning um, it'll be on the screen right about uh, now. Let's see, it's probably delayed. There it is. The mandate to multiply, it means going beyond ourselves. 
In this story in 1920 and 21, verses 1920 and 21, we get to see that Elijah invites Elisha. Do not get hung up in the similarities of the names. I don't know why. I didn't have time to research that part, but it's Elijah to Elisha. He's going to tap this guy on the shoulder to come after him, to follow him, to be his assistant, to be his disciple, so to speak. He's going to build into another. He's going to multiply himself in, the, in his successor, Elisha. And, and that mandate, this example that Elijah lived so many years prior, stands for us today, the mandate to multiply. But it means going beyond ourselves. So the first thing I want to say as I describe this one point, this big idea for the morning is this. All that you are and all that you've been given is not for your own benefit. It was not for your own benefit. All that we are, all that we've been given is not necessarily for our own benefit. And yet, you see, we have a problem. Let me paint the picture, and then I'm going to drive this home. We're going to get into the, the text this morning. But we have a little bit of a problem because we have this whole, uh, what the Bible would call fallen nature, or, or this sin nature, this fallenness issue. It basically means left to our own devices, um, we're kind of a hot mess. Our, our, our natural propensity is to gravitate towards ourself, uh, serving ourselves, our own ego, propping our own selves up as the main character of the story, the central figure of the story, when in fact that's never really the case. We kind of know that, but that's a challenge. We're wired from birth to be that way. That's a challenge. And then uh, to top it off, we get into culture, our, our society, which is really this kind of, it's been popularized around the middle part of the century, the 60s and 70s, this idea of autonomy, that, that we are ours, our bodies belong to ourselves, and every we've been, everything we've been given is for our purposes and our means. Was it, uh, what, am I pronouncing this right? Is it the, the Isley Brothers in, 19, in the 1969 classic? Was that it? Uh, how's the tune go? It's your thing, do what you want to do. I can't tell you. Who you're talking to? All right, that's the PG version. I like that. You said it. I didn't say it, okay, but that's good. It basically, the idea is don't tell me how to live, man. Don't tell me how to be. Don't tell me how to act. That continues on into our worldview today. So we had a stacked deck just in the way we're wired. We're kind of just, we gravitate towards me and, 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 and taking care of myself and mine, getting mine. And then on top of that, we're entered into a society where that's the picture that's being driven down our throats all day long. And yet you see the trick of faith is increasingly becoming about others to go beyond ourselves. That's the trick of faith. There's the trick of the world. There's the trick of some of our wiring, but the trick of faith is to learn how to increasingly become about others. It's characterized by, by this awesome New Testament passage that fits with everything we're talking about this morning. I want you to look at that, dwell on that, and then I'm going to draw us a picture, okay? Just to, this could be the, the crappiest model of all time. Likely it is, because it's, it's just my own brainchild, and I haven't tested it in any real academic circles, all right, but this is something that I call the, uh, the, the concentric circles of selflessness model. Okay, that looks like something from the Soviet Union acronym or something. Um, you, some of you maybe have a hard time seeing it, but here's how it starts. I'm just going to get right into it, okay? In this centermost circle, you probably have an idea what I'm going to draw, but that's me. Little old me right there in the centerpiece. We think that's true, right? That we're the center of the world. And from adolescence and then teenage years and then maybe even the young adults' years, that, that's us. We're the center of the world. And, and it's harder, but God is still giving us opportunities all over the place to grow in our selflessness. All over the place 
There's opportunities to see that we're not the only person in the world, but, but it's, it's somewhat harder. It can be difficult. I'll just speak as the biggest sinner in the room. It was harder for me, okay? As an adolescent, as a teenager, I had no idea there was a bigger, broader world out there that didn't have, you know, the Orange County standards of living. So that's, but that's kind of how it starts. I think this is a progressive uh, 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 kind of um, bent towards selflessness. That's where we're going. So what's this next circle going to be? Pretty basic. It's not going to be anything shocking. But in this next one, we have, I'm told by uh, one of my uh, work colleagues that I don't write with very good handwriting if I'm meant for someone else to actually read it. So I'm trying. And my marker sucks. But here we go. The next layer deeper is man or woman. Girlfriend, boyfriend, fiance, husband, wife. God blesses us by introducing us to this other person who we might actually lay our lives down for whose needs might actually come before our own. We have to actually think about what their thoughts and needs and desires and hopes and dreams are. We're invited in to think about, wow, there's this other human being in the world. They matter a lot. How am I called, called to serve them? And, and how is God using them to help me become more selfless? All right? And then, and then we have one, yet one more still. As the arrow continues, you know what I'm going to put here. The sweet, darling blessing that is kids. Okay, these, these amazing creatures that God brings. And sometimes, all of a sudden, you don't get to feed yourself first. You may not get hot food at all. And you may not get to go to the bathroom on your own time. Because there's always someone pounding on the door, or always someone biting or pulling the hair of their baby brother or sister. And it's crazy. And yet, we understand that, that God is trying to sharpen something in us to consider someone outside of ourselves. He's constantly working and giving us opportunities to see that. And so what's all the way around? As you can see, we're gravitating towards something. We're being sent into the world on all sides. We have this mission to be sent. We're going forth. It can't ever just be for us. It's not just about us. All that we've been given, all that we are, is not just about us. We're supposed to make this move to go out. And yet what happens, like I said, in the culture and society? A constant push to just just get yours. Just be about you all the time. It's driving and pushing us to just go back to the center part. But God's saying, no, I'm sending you out. I want you out here in the world being a light and an encouragement and a servant to your neighbors, to your coworkers, to your families and friends. I want to send you out. And so there's this amazing thing that there's opportunities. All the time, there's opportunities that God's working on. Another thing that I want you to take away from this model is the fact that we're moving from, from me to them. We're going out. We're being sent. There's uh, 95% of the people over here that can't read that. That's okay. And this whole thing is another way, just by the way, of describing faith. This is a, the theological word would be sanctification. Yet we've said yes to Jesus. That's awesome. We crossed the line of faith. And yet we have the whole rest of our process, the whole rest of our time on earth. Whether we stay here forever, by the way, that's awesome. Fantastic. That might be your call. Whether we stay there or whether God blesses us with these opportunities, all the while we're moving out. We're constantly moving out into the world. And there's another layer. There's another one that I'm going to come back to later. But this is a picture, you guys, that I want us to see. I want us to begin to notice that uh, when it comes to our faith, when it comes to the church, when it comes to the new life we've been given by being saved, none of that was ever meant for just us. It wasn't meant for just us. Look at this, this verse. This comes from uh, the Gospel of John. And you may know that um, he had his own set of disciples that were following him. 
And yet Jesus comes along and he's gaining popularity and all the, the crowds are moving over there. And John's disciples turn to him and they say, what's going on? What's up with this guy? Is he the real deal? What about the crowds and our followers? And John just lays it out so crystal clear. Don't let it be mistaken, he says. He, Jesus, must become greater and greater and I must become less and less. I know what I was called to do when I was sent into the world. It was simply to pave a way, just to pave the road clear for the one who was to come after me, a way bigger deal than I could ever be. It wasn't just given for us, you guys. As we go beyond ourselves, that's what I want you to see this morning. So what do we do with this mandate to give ourselves away? When we look at the story of Elijah, what do we do? What's some of the how and the what uh, of how Elijah lived this out? Well, he started with one. He started with just one human being, one individual named Elisha. Elisha. We pick this up here. Uh, turn to your books, your Bibles, your apps. This is from 1 Kings 19, 19. So Elijah went and found Elisha, son of Shaphat, plowing a field. There were 12 teams of oxen in the field, and Elisha was plowing with the 12th team. With the 12th team. Elijah went over to him and threw his cloak across his shoulders and then walked away. All right. What is happening in this picture? What is going on in this picture? I'm going to give you an example of what's happening in this picture, okay? Um, anyone here familiar with the, the Cars movie uh, trilogy? Cars, the animated Pixar, Disney Pixar series, Cars. Okay, uh, just go ahead and raise a hand if you're not familiar with the Cars series. Raise your hand if you're not. That's so rude. I'm singling you guys out. I don't want to make you feel shamed this morning. It's an animated cartoon movie. You should go check it out. It'll change your life like it's about to right now as I give you the synopsis of the third film. Cars 3 came out. It's also a spoiler alert. I'm going to tell you like the huge punchline of the end of the film. So cover your ears if you're so worried. I know. Yeah, start the hissing and the booing. In this story, they're all cars. They're people with voices and names, but they're cars. Okay, the central figure of which is Lightning McQueen, the hero, the centerpiece of the story, the famous one. He's risen to fame and popularity and notoriety because of all of his wins. And yet we find him in the third movie struggling to find his way. Hustling to get to the top. He's at the end of his career. The last chapter has just about been written. And he's trying not to fall into obscurity. He's just clinging all that he can. All the rest of the new cars on the track have been replaced. They got this new technology. They've basically been scientifically modified to make sure they get a win. And he's still got the old technology. And then finally he gets a new sponsor and they give him the new gear. And he's got this trainer, Cruz. Cruz is going to be the sparky, spunky girl who's just like, give him the pep talk. Like she's teaching him how to use his mentality and his positive mindset to make wins happen before ever he gets to use the new technology. And he's dragging his feet. He cannot see the big picture. He has no idea what's going on. Just get me in there and let me win again. It's all about me. I have to get back to that fame. I have to be to the top of the podium again. It's about me and my brand and my name on the side of the car. And that's the direction it's going. And you want him to win. I mean, he's a good guy. He's the protagonist. He's the Elijah. You want him to win. And yet at the end of the movie, and in my mind, and I'm, I feel like I have a pretty good IQ for movie narratives, um, I was shocked because I did not see this coming. But he's in the final race that we're all waiting for, the, the, the moment where he's going to get the W. He's halfway through all the laps. And by some uh, loophole of racing rules, um, he calls in a sub. All of a sudden, in this like laser clarity, he's on the racetrack and he sees all of a sudden a flashback of all these moments when Cruz, who was the rising star but was never meant to be because everyone told her she could never do it, she would never be with the big boys, she was from the wrong neighborhood, she had the wrong identity, she could never do it. All of a sudden, the light clicks on. She's the next generation. She's the one to take the spot. 
And as I say, there's some loophole rule where you can tag someone in, I guess, to race for you, as long as you have the same name along the side. And they tag her in, and of course, you know what happens next? She goes on to win. But in this moment of unbelievable selflessness, going beyond and outside himself, he taps Cruz on the shoulder to say, go on, get in there, and, and, and so you can become greater, and I can become less and less. I did not see the selflessness narrative coming in this film. And yet, that's the same call we have in our lives to tap someone on the shoulder, to invite someone into a process, to develop them, coach them, build into them. So how might you do that? Well, I think practically, what do we do when we're looking for that person? Look for someone with potential. If you're taking notes, you can write this down. Look for someone with potential. What I love about the narrative of the Bible and God's story is that it's not always the perfect person who gets picked, isn't it? It's actually often the marginalized and the less than and the, and the, and the underdog. Thank God for that. There's hope for me. There's hope for us. Looking for someone with potential. Maybe not the person who has it all figured out. You're looking for someone who maybe wants to work hard. Notice in the text it says that Elisha was with the 12th team. His hands were to the plow. Maybe in the person we're looking for, we we might check for calloused hands before we look for a hundred verses memorized. The holiest person. The person who's at church the most throughout the year. Look for that person inside and outside the walls of the church that you might build into. We're looking for someone prayerfully that God has sent us to. Have we asked God lately who he wants us to build into, who we're being sent to? And and to give you some some actual definition behind the cloak, he's throwing the cloak across Elisha's shoulders. What does that mean? It's at least equal parts passing the mantle of leadership and calling and vocation and and sentness. It's equal parts placing that over his head, over his shoulders, as it is a spiritual adoption, so to speak. And here's a question that I want you to think about right now. I'm going to put it on the screen and just let you look at that for a second. It made me think, how many kids do you have? How many kids do I have, spiritually speaking? Are there kids and people, whether they're a year younger than me or a decade younger than me or a teenager, How many of those do I have spread out throughout the world that I've been building into over time? It's a great challenging question to think about in our lives as we invest our time. So going beyond ourselves by building into another, it always, the second thing that I see as we go into verse 20, building into another, multiplying by going beyond ourselves, it always has a compounding effect. It's never just about the one. That's the amazing thing. You think it's just about Elisha? The invitation of the one so he can become more? Is it just about the one? There's, it's never just about the one in God's story when we invest in someone else. Look at me with, with, with me at verse 20. Elisha left the oxen standing there, ran after Elijah, and said to him, First let me go and kiss my father and mother goodbye, and then I will go with you. Elijah replied, Go on back, but think about what I've done to you. Now, a quick qualifier. Some of us who are more familiar with the some of the references in the Bible may think, is that an allusion to Luke 9? There's a story where a follower pipes up to Jesus and says, oh, I'm going to come follow you. Let me do that. And Jesus says, okay. And he's like, well, let me first go take care of some family businesses. And Jesus is like, no, 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 no. Don't, don't even get distracted. Focus and come with me. Come follow me. Don't be mistaken of what's happening here. This is no feet dragging on behalf of Elisha. Here's what Elisha is actually going to do. He, he is, he is, he's one of the few remaining prophets left. 
The subtitle of the series is You Are Not Alone. Elijah felt alone. And like I said, this godless culture, this culture that's just gone so sideways. And yet God even told him in our previous weeks as we studied these passages, you're not alone. There are several other prophets. Maybe Elisha is one of those. He's known in the neighborhood and the family as being one of those men of God, even locally. Maybe they've been praying for Elisha all this time. God, help Elijah find out what he's supposed to do with his life. God, this seems like a gifted man, but when, when is his time and place going to come? God, give Elisha patience. The neighborhood is praying. The family is praying. And yet he receives the call and he goes back to his circles of influence. And he throws one heck of a party The craziest going away party you've ever heard of in your life. We're going to talk about that in verse 21, but just sit there for a second. He goes back. That's what he's going back to do is give people a heads up. I've got the call. I'm leaving town. And I probably won't see you ever again. Look at what this says. Think about this in our own lives. Intentionally building into one is possibly the most compounding investment you'll ever make. You start with one. Start with that person that's in front of you. You've asked God, you've prayerfully considered, who is it that God wants me to build into? Coach, mentor, encourage. Start with that one. That one is always going to be attached and associated with a community, with a village, with a workplace, with a family of their own. And they will be sent long before the day they're ultimately sent. They'll be sent from day one having relationship with you in a a one-on-one relationship to those communities and those neighborhoods. Discipleship never happens in isolation never happens just one-on-one. So what happens next in the story? I allude to this big party and how to, what the heck does that have to do with moving beyond ourselves? Moving beyond ourselves ultimately means forsaking all that we hold dear, forsaking all that we hold dear and not looking back. Look what Elisha does in verse 21. Read on with me. So Elisha returned to his oxen and slaughtered them. He used the wood from the plow to build a fire to roast their flesh, massive barbecue. He passed around the meat to the townspeople, the community I alluded to, and they all ate. And he went with Elijah as his assistant. Understand for a second that oxen in this time and place is no small com- commodity. This is not just a, a, a cheap, this is not just a Costco barbecue, okay? This is the filet mignon status getting all the choice stuff, the one thing we had to drive our economy, and I'm lighting the fires and torching this thing. And I'm inviting everyone else to understand about my sentness, about how I'm going to go be about someone else for a while. That's a huge deal, and it makes me think of this historical idiom. You've heard of it before. Uh, It's called burn the ships. Anyone ever heard that before, burn the ships? Yeah, we maybe commonly, somewhat commonly remember what it means to burn the ships. There's uh, lots of historical examples from this. I'm going as far back as the 500s in in Asia, but there's another really popular one that people like to cite. In Hernan Cortez, 1519, in the Spanish conquest of Mexico, it's said that Hernan, when arriving to the coastal shore, told the crew, torch them, torch the ships. There's no going back that direction. Stand our ground and move forward, or not at all. Burn the ships. And I think about that, and and maybe there's some people here, I even found a definition that I thought was pretty cool for our spiritual application this morning. You seafaring, seafaring people will be familiar with this, but there's even this concept, the point of no return. It's the point beyond which one must continue on one's current course of action because 
turning back is physically impossible, prohibitively expensive, or dangerous. A particular irreversible action. This will tell you something about what's going on in Elisha's head. He's making the same call. There's no going back for me. I'm going full steam ahead, laser focused on devoting my life to this man of God and what God has prepared him to give me and build me up so that I can go do the work of God in the most selfless manner possible, to go out beyond myself. Here's some things about burning the ships, about the point of no return. Retreat is easy when you have the option. Retreat can be easy when you have the option. And how many of us slide into that using practical terms like, ah, I just, it's my safety net. I'm too scared. Or the fear won't let me. Or, or maybe even we say, we just don't have enough time. Or the timing's not right right now. Maybe you're thinking in the room that you're not even the right guy or the right girl. You're not the right person today. Because you haven't figured it out, figured it all out. You haven't arrived. As always, this will not be the last time I say this, but to you in the room who you're thinking, ah, it's not the right time, or I'm fearful, or I'm not ready, uh, use the words of one of my favorite authors and pastors. His name's Francis Chan. He encourages us to err on the side of action. Err on the side of action if you think you're not ready, if you think you're not the chosen person to be sent in this ministry of selflessness and multiplying yourself. So burn up, burn up whatever it is that you're holding on to. Totally forsake it. Set it ablaze for the thing that you value most. And sometimes those things we value most are the things that need to be torched because they're taking away or belittling the plans that God has for us. So the challenge that I read in in Elisha is to burn the ships, to create a point of no return situation for you and for, for me. By setting ablaze those things that we value most. So here's what I want to say, you guys. The band's going to come up here in in a couple minutes. And and I want you to dwell on this point as I wind down our time. Let your last act be your greatest. I don't care if you are a single 20-something, if you are 45, 55, 70 years old. You can let the last chapter be your greatest. You can let your final stand be all in, torching the ships because you're chasing after one who's attached to the community of many and you're going beyond yourself to multiply what it is that God has given you to to send forth into the world. And I just want to tell you guys, I want to say to you this morning specifically for our uniqueness as a church, Watermark as a church, our greatest asset is not the building, even though we're so thankful to God to be able to have a space to meet. It is not the decorations, though we do believe that the walls can even speak to the beauty of Jesus. It is not the band, though we are so grateful we have the the audio medium to help us raise our voices to Jesus. It's not the messaging even. Thank God for sparing us from these people who bring the message some days. It's not those things. In my opinion, the greatest asset at Watermark is all of us, all of you. Fully orbed, mature fully developed disciplers of Jesus, ready to be sent. And so when I look at this model, I just want to make it personal for a second, this last sphere, what does this last edge look like? Are we able to say when we get to this last checkpoint, when we get to this last place, this last chapter, well, I got the kids through college. I got the kids through college. 
I got through my 20, 25, 30-year tenure. Check and check. Has that ever been the call? As I was thinking about this passage, I'm, I'm thinking in my mind the other verses in the Bible. Uh, you could win the world but lose your soul. I'm thinking about the passages about for those of us who have children or grandchildren or, or someone who's a spiritual child in your life. I'm thinking to myself, what are we supposed to do with those kids? Ensure that they have worldly success by getting them through college and setting up the nest egg. I don't read that anywhere. What I read is a call to make sure that those spiritual kids or biological kids are sent like arrows in the hand of a warrior. That's the call for the next generation. That's the call for our spiritual kids and our biological kids. It's not to have some kind of pragmatic concern that we ensured their worldly success. As the band comes up and we prepare our hearts for communion, I want you to ask this question. Who is God calling you to build into? I want you to prayerfully consider, even during the song, who is God calling you to build into? Who is that one? I want you to ask that question. I want you to think about that that question, that person, that name that God would bring to you. The second thing that I would ask you to pray for is how is God calling you to burn the ships? And this mandate to multiply, to go beyond ourselves, how, what, where is God calling you to burn the ships? What are those things that are like a tether? We are bound. What is that shackle? What is that chain that is holding us back from going forth saying we are sent and we're laser focused on this person, on this place, on this community, on this moment? to show them what it means to be sent and to be a person who cares radically about going beyond ourselves. When we come to the tables, every, every Sunday at Watermark, when we come to the tables, the wonderful, the beautiful thing about communion to me is, yes, it speaks to the retroactive power of salvation. You have been forgiven and freed. Every time, take this as a reminder of what I've done for you. You are forgiven and freed, period. And what is the charge? What is the mandate to go forward with that grace and multiply that in the hearts and minds of people that we've been called to? It is always a twofold moment, a twofold call when we come to the tables at the front and the back corners. Consider that and I'll pray for us right now. Jesus, I just thank you so much for this morning. God, I'm so thankful for this community of men and women, Lord, that you have called, that you have equipped, you've trained, you've brought forth in this time, in this place, in 2017, in Costa Mesa, in Irvine, in Tustin, in Newport Beach, in South County, North County, all over the place, God, to be sent as messengers. That they would know that they're not alone in that, Jesus. That they would have a family that's building them up and that they would have an audience and a target that you're sending them after, Jesus. I pray that you would speak clearly right now (laughs) in five minutes on a worship service Sunday morning here at Watermark, God. You'd speak clearly. Put a name on people's hearts and minds. Put a neighborhood on people's hearts and minds. Put an action step, Lord, that they could no longer avoid, God. Put that on our hearts and our minds right now that we could go forth tomorrow morning and honor this bread and this wine, Lord God, your body and your blood broken and shed for us, Jesus, that we can honor that by being sent in the world, Jesus. That's my prayer. 
Thank you, Father. Amen. To find out more about us, go online to watermarkoc.church.